I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, July 24th, 2022, and this is episode 179 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing is something that just happened last night and that blew everything else out of the water already. Um, The teaser trailer for Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever dropped and it is amazing. I've heard several people, including the one person I live with and people online, just saying it's the best trailer that they've ever seen and it just looks so fascinating. Um, I had to, you know, bring a tissue. If you haven't seen it already, I'll link to it in the show notes. It looks like they're dealing with the death of Chadwick Boseman, just in a really special way. Also, uh, this is the movie that introduces Namor and the Marvel version of Atlantis in a way that I thought was really exciting. It looks like it's going to be like um, a Mayan or Aztec, sort of indigenous American-based society, which fabulous. I'm super excited about seeing how that comes on screen, seeing the world building that they're going to do. In addition to the just added emotional weight of, you know, this being a movie without the star. I have talked before about how I went to college. I went to Howard with Chadwick Boseman and he was in the acting program. I was in the film program. So I filmed plenty of, you know, productions where he was acting in And my brother also knew him after college uh, in the acting world. And so, you know, his passing, it just, it hit a little harder because it was something that I actually knew 20 years ago. Uh, But his success also was just like, you know, there's plenty of people from Howard University who've done amazing things. And I happened to be there at a really amazing time, the late 90s. There's many other people who I was at school with, had classes with, who've gone on to do great things. Um... But watching Chad's success and, you know, then his very early death is, is obviously difficult. But, um, I had, I had a friend from high school who passed away when she was 22. She had cancer. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, there's certain people who burn really bright and they live so much life in a shorter period of time than other people. Like my friend from high school, she was just one of those people who just, it seemed like she packed so much into 22 years. And when she was gone, you know, we're kind of left with, did she do what she came here to do early? Like, is that a consideration? Did Chad do what he came here to do early? Because he did so much. And, you know, we try to find meaning in you know these tragedies and untimely deaths. But, um, and looking at this trailer and thinking about the task that Ryan Coogler and everyone who had who made that movie had to tell a story, but also this sort of added, I don't want to say burden, but added responsibility of like living up to this legacy uh, that Chad created. It's similar to when uh, Paul Walker died while they were filming that Fast and the Furious movie. And I thought, I thought they did a great job with that. You know, these movies bring the extra emotional weight of the audience on top of the story that they're telling. And it's a different experience when you know Paul Walker died filming this. And when you know, you know, that Chad died, nobody, nobody knew he was going to. And so they have to tell a a story in creative ways and just live up to that legacy. And uh, so I think that Ryan Googler can pull it off. Everything I've seen from him has been amazing. And with that added inspiration of, 
doing something for a higher purpose almost. I just can't, I can't wait to see how they, how they do it, how it comes together. And I'm really excited. I'm going to bring a box of tissues to the movie theater with me. <laughs> Writing update, not a ton of progress to share. I was working on my Black Towns book and the revision of it from the first draft. And I've revised several scenes. Um, I think I'm on chapter four or chapter five right now. And then I realized I had to do a little bit of research on her job. My main character, I've made her a bookkeeper in this corporation. And so the story takes place in 1935. And I had to research what does a bookkeeper do and what did they do in 1935 if it's different. And that led me to to bookkeeping machines and comptometers. A comptometer was a sort of like a typewriter calculator. It was a mechanical calculator. And I found a YouTube video on how they worked. And then my brain broke. And I tweeted about that. I was like, Addition, very easy. Multiplication, you're like, okay, multiplication is just addition simplified or um, magnified. I don't know what you call it. Subtraction and division on this mechanical calculator, a whole skill, like a whole training skill. And it requires its own math just to do the other math. And watch the video if you are at all interested. Um, I was fascinated by it. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I knew that she was good with numbers, my character, who was the bookkeeper, but if she's using this machine, you know, and it it was something that people did. You just, you learned how to do it and you did it. And it's probably, you know, as amazing to them as us, you know, using computers and and programming computers. But, you know, I code for a living and I was watching that video like, wow. (laughs) So I needed a grounding in her job because there's a scene that I was revising that had to do with, I needed her, you know, then to have a conversation about a specific thing she would have been responsible for. And that, that was like a, a leaping pad uh, for the emotional content of the scene and the, the plot motion of the scene. And so I had made up some stuff in the first draft that I just had to make sure that it was right. And we're in the revision and this is where all of those placeholders get replaced by the real thing. So I had to take, like, it took a day and a half of writing time days to research this, I found this article on JSTOR about the genderization of accounting and bookkeeping. And I will not bore you with it, but uh, I thought it was interesting. And so, and then I was also dealing with, okay, this is not going to be the most advanced corporation. Like they could be using technology from 20, 30, 40 years before. They might not be using the bookkeeping machines or the comptometer. So I've kind of made those decisions like, are they cutting edge or it's a black owned corporation, which is a big deal for the time, but they're not going to have the latest, greatest stuff necessarily. All those things go into two chapters um, that happen to her at work. And then I need to move on. But I got my grounding. I finished those chapters. I didn't get as much done as I wanted to get done this week because I had a lot of other things encroaching on my writing time, like appointments I had to schedule in the morning. I usually try to keep my mornings free for writing. Um, my writing time is usually 8 to 11 or 12, depending. And But sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes I have to schedule an appointment or, you know, I'm still driving my husband to appointments because he's still injured. So those things get in the way. And uh, when I come back, I can't always write a, I've got work, work to do, my regular day job stuff. And I've unfortunately gotten into a place where I need to write fresh first thing in the morning. It's really hard for me to do a bunch of stuff, come home at 1 p.m. or something, and then sit down and write. And I need to get over that because, 
you know, I can take the time if I'm, if work is not crazy, then I could use that time to write. I haven't been writing in the evenings. I've, I, I've done it occasionally over the past year or two, I've done a writing session in the evening. And it's, if I sit down and do it, it will come. The words come much slower because I'm more tired, but you know, some people write in the evening. That's what they have to do. And some people prefer to do that. I've written at all times of the day over the course of, you know, years of life, of writing life. But um, I've just gotten so in the habit of first thing in the morning, I'm fresh, I'm ready to go, I'm energized. When I spend that energy on other things, coming back to it is harder. Um, so I'm trying to give myself grace because I am still in a period of time where there's a lot of pressures on my time and I have a lot of additional responsibilities and just, like I said, give myself grace, be kind to myself and not so demanding. Uh, but I am disappointed when I can't do as much as I want to do or much as I, I know that I can do when circumstances are normal. But when they're not normal, you can't treat them like they're normal. So something has to give. And um, I've been trying to take a few things off my plate, trying not to add too much more onto my plate, which is always a struggle. But there we are. Self-care is treating yourself with kindness, no matter what that looks like. And it's a process I'm working on, just like everyone else. I've seen several posts and conversations about this new reality show for authors, America's Next Great Author. And when I first saw a friend uh, post it on Facebook, I clicked it. And then I was like, wait, this looks like an April Fool's joke. I checked the date because who knows time? What is time? It seemed like a troll to me at first because it's like literary authors that like Kwame Alexander is involved. Jason Reynolds is involved. And the whole premise is to shoot like a pilot for this reality show where a group of authors are picked to live in a house and have their lives recorded and write a book in 30 days. So um, I think the guy from NaNoWriMo is on the board also. It's NaNoWriMo meets real world. And okay, fine. I mean, writing is not very visual. So I guess I'll have to bring the drama like they always do. You know, all of those shows are scripted. I don't want to burst the bubble if you didn't know, but it's pretty common knowledge. Um, like all the drama scripted. So, but something about it just felt fake to me. You know, it's like a $2,500 prize, which is like, okay. Literary authors are involved. You can do NaNoWriMo on a genre novel, on, you know, commercial fiction, but I don't know about literary. And maybe, you know, I'm sure they're not judging. They're not like going to pick based on genre in terms of picking the authors who are going to participate based on genre. But the whole thing just seemed fishy. Uh, apparently it's real. Jane Friedman in her hot sheet uh, newsletter, which I highly recommend, was talking about it too. And I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens with it. It's it's an interesting idea. I wish them all the best, I guess. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it was in the same hot sheet newsletter that I came across um, this substack from Paul Bogards, who was a traditional publishing executive. I think he's a publicity guy. He left one of the big five and started his own book PR firm. And I was just looking through his, his substack, his newsletter, and I came across this quote. So he's talking about making books work and the pressure that publishers and editors and even authors are under to have successful, you know, high selling, best selling books. Um, and I wrote, I, I didn't write this down. I copied this down. Um, so 
Author Steve Allman said that, When one author enjoys success, the rest of us get to watch them ascending through the fog of obscurity. Social media has made these triumphs that much easier to broadcast. We are exhorted to build our platforms, burnish our brands. The net result is a zeitgeist that simultaneously compels us to silence any mention of our failures while amplifying the shame we feel about them. And Bogarts goes on to say there's no shame or failure in having written a book that does not achieve a measure of commercial success. The worth is in the book, in the exercise of writing, in having found a publisher, in the finished book itself. And that really spoke to me. You know, we all feel in the traditional world, I'll I'll put on my traditional published hat for a second. Um, You know, you do, you feel like you've gotten an advance, you want to earn out, you want to be successful, whatever that means. And usually that means sales. You want to have the gamble that they took on you pay off. You want people to read it because you want to write more books. And if no one buys this book, you're not going to get the opportunity, at least with that publisher, most likely to do more. So there does feel like a lot of pressure to, you know, build our platforms, create author brands, do all of this work that may or may not make a difference, and then not talk about the failure. Social media famously, you know, is a place where people only show the best parts of their lives uh, for the most part. And so you're seeing all the happy, shiny things and you're seeing the successes and, you know, the, the, um, the urge to be quiet about your failures is real and makes perfect sense. But it's also like talking about the failures and the difficult parts are so vital to having a full understanding of what you're getting yourself into. And there are more and more places where you are getting that. You know, I think like one of the points of my podcast, I know Zoraida Cordova and Danielle Clayton, they have their Deadline City podcast where they talk about all that stuff, just real unfiltered as much as possible. Like we can't say everything, there are contractual things, but like, you know, showing the hard times and and showing the failures and things that that weren't successful, you know, um, for me this week, I got another email from my agent about... I had asked her to, you know, ask Macmillan about if I can buy the rights to the audiobook for Requiem of Silence because they never made the audiobook for the fourth book in Earthsinger Chronicles because the sales were too low of the first, well, I guess the first book is always going to sell more and then subsequent books just by the nature of things. Not everyone's going to make it through the whole series. And I would happily buy the rights back and make the audiobook myself just for completion, just because I do get emails from people who are like, hey, I've listened to the whole, you know, the first three, where's the fourth one? And I have to say, there is no fourth one. I don't know when there will be a fourth one. Uh, you know, they might make one if the sales pick up, but there's no guarantees. And I don't have any ability to do anything about that. And so every few months I'm like, hey, can you check and see if they'll sell me my rights back? Um, because it is, it's disappointing to me. There are, there are readers who only listen to audiobooks. There are accessibility reasons why someone needs an audiobook. And as much as possible, I want to be able to provide the formats that allow my books to be consumed by as many people as possible. So I consider that a failure on some level. I don't think it's a personal failure. Like Requiem is the best book. I could make it. I'm very proud of it. I think it's the best of the four in the series, honestly and truly. I love it but it didn't sell as well as they'd hoped. And, um, you know, that's, that's a failure on many levels, I guess. And, you know, coming into my new release, The Monsters We Defy, it's got a good buzz. I think it's the best book I could write. I think it's the best book I've written thus far. 
I do feel like I'm getting better with each one. And who knows what's going to happen with it? You know, they are making an audiobook. <laughs> Although I have it in my note to check it because we're two weeks out and I haven't heard anything. Like I haven't heard the final book or even clips from it or anything like that. So that's on the list. But um, yeah, no one wants to admit failure, but everyone fails. And people who have large successes often have had large failures and that's the path through it, you know? So just something that I think we probably should talk about even more, even though it is very difficult and nobody wants to admit to failures because it makes you feel bad, right? I was also interviewed um, recently and the interviewer asked a question about publishing gatekeepers and my experience with racism in traditional publishing. And then the, the question was kind of framed as to assume that I'd had a negative experience with my publishers and um, in some way, in, in terms of gatekeeping, what I felt I could write about, um, how I, you know, write about race and things like that. And I was like, no, I haven't actually had any negative experiences in that regard. I mean, I've been very fortunate to work with two Black women editors at two different traditional publishing houses. And that's fairly unusual, I guess, because there's not that many Black women editors in TradPub. But, you know, I've had ups and downs for sure, but it's never been, no one's ever been like, oh, you, you can't write that, you can't say that from a racial perspective or any kind of social, um, you know, perspective. And it reminded me of this interview I saw with a woman called Africa Brooke, who I think she's like a coach of some kind. I'm not entirely clear on what her job is. But um, she was interviewed on this podcast that I will link to in the show notes. Now she is, she's from Zimbabwe, I believe, but she lives in Britain. She moved to Britain when she was very young. And so she's black. Uh, but she had this whole thing about not being oppressed, which I think is really liberating. You know, I think that so much of our society now, and I can only speak from, and from a black perspective, you know, we're talking about anti-racism and uh, systemic racism, which obviously systemic racism exists. It has existed. There's there's plenty of examples of prejudice. I've lived through actual racism in my life. Um, but at the same time, it's possible to live through those things and not feel oppressed. Me specifically, it would be very difficult for me to talk about levels of oppression when, you know, I have a master's degree. I'm a third generation college graduate on my father's side of the family. I've had a lot of privileges in my life and um, a lot of opportunities. And yes, I've had racism too, but there's something very freeing and like empowering about saying that, no, I can't point to a specific moment career-wise when I personally feel like I have been oppressed. And the fact that there's a lot of backlash to say that, you know, like I'm saying it in the same breath as, yes, I've been called the N-word and I've had, you know, plenty of prejudice and um, like unfair things that have happened, but I'm a smart person and I've had lots of opportunities to go to college. I've you know, gotten jobs that I wanted, you know, I've only, there's only ever one job that I applied for that I never got. And I felt qualified. I feel like I, I've taken hold of my destiny. I started my own businesses and gotten publishing contracts. I haven't gotten accepted for everything that I tried for, but that's different than oppression, obviously. So maybe normalize not being oppressed and normalize just feeling empowered by your life, no matter who you are, no matter what the things that you faced, 
you know, I can still want our world to have less racism and to have less prejudice and discrimination and acknowledge that, yes, these things exist and I've experienced them as well. But also, how am I going to take those experiences and go forward? I think for what, you know, my understanding of it was that I'm not going to allow any of these external factors to stop what I'm doing. Like, I'm going to find a way through. I think that is a a mindset that honors our ancestors and our, their struggle and their oppression when they had no opportunities or when they had many fewer opportunities. Because with all this historical research, I'm always finding all the way back to, you know, I haven't gone much, much past the 1800s, but there's plenty of examples of Black people finding a way through when everything was stacked against them, when the law of the land was literally that they were in chains. They still managed to find a way through. And would they have said that they were oppressed? I'm sure that some of them would have said that they were not because they either escaped or they bought their freedom or whatever happened. They started businesses. They they did the best they could. They were striving and pushing and fighting back all the time against all of these pressures against them. And for me in 2022, to scream about oppression in the face of that, in the face of the stories that I'm telling about these real people in history and just trying to lift up my ancestors and, you know, walk the path that they laid. That was just inspiring to me. And I want to take that energy and go forward and just, you know, build, build as much as possible and push back against everything and and claim it, claim all the good things that I think that can be in store. So that's it for me for this week. My goals for the coming week are right. A Polycon is coming up, which is a big reader event in the DC area. It's this weekend and I will be there. If any of you will be there, I hope that you come and say hi. And so that's going to take obviously some time away from writing, but maybe that will fill the well, being able to see other authors that I used to get to see at RWA nationals and don't. So, but so many people are going to be there. Other authors, readers, it'll be a great time, I'm hoping, and then I'll have to recover. And then I'll have a book launch soon too. So trying to organize myself as much as possible to uh, just get through the next few weeks, keep my energy up and keep writing, get these books finished. That's always the goal. And I hope that you have a wonderful week and I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com and I would really appreciate a rating and review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcast.